It has often been said, hasn't it, that we are living in the age of instant gratification. Yeah? If you read the messenger comment uh, on the front of your messenger or if you saw the post that we made to Facebook this week, you'll see that I am really struggling with the fact that I have to wait a whole week for the next episode of Utopia, my favourite TV show at the moment. Is anyone else on that, on that bandwagon? Everyone waiting for the next episode of Utopia? You really should. It's very instructive. It helps you understand government uh, in all its levels. Right. Maybe not, but it is a brilliant satire. And you have to wait, and waiting is not good. It's not something we do well. It's not something I enjoy. When it comes to correspondence, right? The previous generations would send letters. We send emails. And uh, emails, which used to appear on your desktop computer, so when you got back to your desk, you could open your emails, now appear on your phone, your iPad, and if you're particularly insane, they come up as notifications on your watch. We live in the age of instant gratification. I, uh, for my close friends and close work associates, if we need to do something quickly, we'll send a text. And, uh, you know, we, we, we're not too urgent about things. You, you have 30 or 60 seconds to respond to my texts, and, and I do, do start to get a little bit anxious if after 10 seconds I don't see the little bubble appear showing me that you are, you know, composing a response. We live in the age of instant gratifications. Companies are working harder and harder, unfortunately, driving their staff into the ground in some of the cases, in order to ensure that when we order something online, we get it in the quickest possible way. Uh, my, my favorite story of this is a number of years ago, I had to buy a piece of equipment from uh, New York, in fact, was the cheapest place in the world to find this piece of equipment, even with exchange rates and so on, and I ordered it late, so 10 o'clock, after 10 p.m. on a Friday evening, and it was here at the front door of the core at, well, when I got here at 8 a.m. on Monday morning. Isn't that incredible? Over the weekend, I got something delivered from New York. So countries, and that's pretty much normal way of doing things these days. We want to order things and have them instantly. Well, one of the side effects of, of our passion for uh, the present is that we don't always focus so much on the future. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I talked about how this attitude of instant gratification can, can get us into debt and how much struggle and stress we can get from uh, credit and living in debt. And today, I want to add to that, but not only can it build debt, but it can make us poor investors in the future. And the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, we need to invest for the future, because tomorrow matters. So Jesus tells us this interesting parable in Matthew chapter 25, the story of the talents, and I love the, the message translation of it for its down-to-earth language. But unfortunately, in a message translation of this text, he talks about thousands of dollars. Do you remember? One he gave 5,000, one he gave 3,000, one he gave 1,000. Do you, do you remember that part of the story? Well, in fact, it's not quite accurate. So, we're talking about talents, okay? We're talking about Roman talents, and Roman talent was a disc of gold that weighed 75 pounds, 35 kilograms. 
This is not an insignificant amount of money. At current gold prices, this thing is worth, a talent is worth about one and a half million. So the translation is not not quite accurate in that sense. If you do read the NIV translation or the NRSV, you'll have a little note at the bottom of your translation will say this is about the equivalent of 15 years wages or 20 years wages. So it's not an insignificant amount of money. Well, so Jesus tells this interesting parable about a rich businessman who has a huge amount of money to invest. He hires three investment fund managers. He gives one manager 25 million to take care of, another manager he gives 15 million to take care of, and the other he gave 5 million to take care of. Um, these figures are based on gold prices of a few years ago. When he came back, both the 25 million and 15 million manager had invested money. They, they'd done well. Um, we generally understand that investment cycles in, the, in Jewish society ran to about six to seven years. So we can calculate from that that they both worked hard and made the money about 12%. Um, in, which is pretty good growth, right? Everyone be happy to get 12% in return on your investment over a six-year cycle, yeah? Which doubles your money. So they did good. Um, they wisely put it to work. But the $5 million manager stuffed the money in a mattress or buried it in the yard, right? Would be a pretty lumpy mattress. Um, he did nothing with it. And uh, when the businessman came back, the master comes back, he is disappointed. To, to say the least. And he even accuses the $5 million management, the manager of mismanagement and misunderstanding the relationship he has with the master. There is a, an organisation called the Institute for Faith, Works and Economics and I love the way they describe this story because it uses lots of words that I don't understand and um, maybe I'll ask some of you what these might mean. But how's this for a great description of this story? Matthew's Gospel records Jesus' illustration of eight talents, the equivalent of 40 million USD, you know, US dollars. The owner in the parable administers the same investment process used by today's institutional investors to multiply the talents. His investment strategy, here's what this makes great, includes long-term horizon and strategic asset allocation, including diversification, weighting and reporting. Furthermore, the percentage allocation of these talents is efficient and reasonably corresponds to Harry Markowitz's 1990 Nobel Prize winning modern portfolio theory. How good is that, right? I don't understand any... I'm going to ask Joe what any of that means later on, because he has an MBA. Where are you, Joe? You can explain it to me. Um, so, this is a story of financial investment. We are called to put out money to work it comes to investing the money that God has entrusted to us. There are a number of tips from Scripture we need to remember. Now, if you have your messenger inside the messenger, should be a little worksheet with three uh, tips for investing that uh, you can take out and um, find a pen. Usually ask a, a baby boomer if they've got a pen and um, you can fill that out. Or you can just type the answers into your phone because these are important things to know, no matter how old you are. People are mumbling. Is everyone upset that I singled out baby boomers for pen users? <laughs> All right, number one. Number one investing process, investing principle, is to know what you're doing. Yeah? Do your research, get good advice. 
I love the way Terry Pratchett talks about knowledge. He says, they say a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but it's not, so half, not one half so bad as a whole lot of ignorance. It's a great quote, isn't it? Knowledge is important. Look what Proverbs uh, Solomon says. Solomon's probably a wiser guy than Terry Pratchett, but still. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding it is established through knowledge. Its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. When we're talking about investing, from the smallest investments to the largest investments, do your research. Don't invest in things that you don't fully understand. Don't invest in things that people can't explain. Don't invest in things that seem sketchy. Don't invest in get-rich-quick schemes. How do you know if something's a get-rich-quick scheme? Yeah, it promises you'll get rich quick, right? Don't do that. It's not wise. You know, the greatest example of this um, having knowledge is perhaps this building. I don't know how many of you know the story of this, this facility that we sit in today, but it's a, it is a fantastic investment in the future. Originally, when it was thought of, a businessman comes to us and says, have I got a deal for you? Were they the words he used? Who was, who was in that committee at the time? Have I got a deal for you? That's, that's probably a red flag. But fortunately, we had some good people around teams and they looked very carefully at what was proposed. They understood it and they've discovered and found that it seemed a little bit risky. And so somebody on the team drew up a contract that made it less risky. And sure enough, things turned out not so great. The builder went broke, ended up in courts and all sorts of legal wrangles and financial hassles. But in the end, because of the wisdom and the knowledge that those people had taken the time to acquire, we now sit in this incredible facility. And if it hadn't been for that knowledge and wisdom, I don't think we'd have anything like this. Do you know that story? Did you know that? By wisdom, a house is built, it says in Proverbs. So that's the first piece of investing advice. Know what you're doing. The second piece of investing advice comes from something my Nana said. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Whose Nana said that to? Whose father said that, mother said that? Pretty much everybody says, don't put your eggs in one basket. Well, you know who else says it? Solomon. Solomon said, but divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. Ecclesiastes 11, 2. And according to Jesus' story, the master does just that. He's super rich, so he takes his investment, and, and according to that online website, he divides it among three of his investment fund managers according to you know, Nobel Prize winning theory and Jesus was clever. And so, um, it is actually funny how much incredibly detailed investment advice is in this story, as though it's just oh, back of the head knowledge that Jesus draws out just to put into this story. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, doesn't matter. I thought it was interesting. So, according to the Bible, you shouldn't have all your investments tied up in one company, one industry or one property or one fund. Perhaps if you think across all the, the retirement funds and super funds and, and all those sorts of things, um, where all that money you have is invested. Get some advice, have a look, and make sure all your eggs are not in one basket. 
In Australia, it used to be the case that a lot of people had most of their investment tied up in property, in their mortgage, in their home. And um, that's probably something to look at as well. Now, the third piece, that's, that's great, right? So we're all going to take those two pieces of advice and, you know, apply them and find ourselves, you know, like the $25 million manager and the $15 million manager and, and doing relatively well with our wealth, we hope. But the third piece of advice is this, don't fall into a trap. Beware of the trap. So, whenever you start talking about money as a, as a preacher, as a core officer, as a uh, leader of any sort, really, in the church, people start to get a little bit uncomfortable and concerned. And they start to talk about prosperity doctrine. Has anyone heard of prosperity doctrine? Yeah, yeah, mumble, mumble, right? Prosperity doctrine is that kind of thinking that says that if you follow the ways of God, if you live a godly life, then you will become wealthy financially. That's what the prosperity doctrine says. Has anyone heard that kind of teaching? Anybody watched some Sunday morning, early in the morning televangelist preachers who want you to send money in order to make your life great? Anyone? I started watching a show called The Righteous Gemstones. I do not watch the show. It's not worth it, but it's hilarious. Okay. I do not recommend it. But uh, yeah, if you want to see televangelists, it's terrible. Okay. Prosperity doctrine, you see. So back in the first century, this, this is not a new thing, right? Back in the first century, Paul, one of the great earliest leaders of the Christian church, is writing to Timothy, his understudy, his student, his mentoree. And he writes to Timothy, and he warns him about false teachers who claim to be teaching the gospel, but they are in fact false. And he says this of them, he says, they have an unhealthy interest in controversy, controversy, Con yeah. and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind, who have been robbed of the truth, and get this, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Okay, so one of the key descriptors of a false teacher is someone who says, Godliness is a means to financial gain. Right. So on the one hand, we have thousands of texts in the Bible that talk about investing. And they talk about investing money. And they talk about making it work. They talk about building your wealth. You have Jesus teaching us how to invest according to Nobel Prize winning theory. But on the other hand, we have Paul telling us that it's false to think that godliness is a means to financial gain. What gives? Does anyone see the paradox here? Paul continues and he says, and he, he describes the trap. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation, a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich. So this doesn't just apply to people who have lots of money. This applies to all 
who want more. Money is not the problem. See, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is not the problem. The love of money, the wanting of money, the wanting to get rich, that is the trap. Okay, right, great. So we are called to invest, given all this great advice from Solomon and Jesus, but we're not going to get rich. Does that make sense to anybody? Everyone's looking at me blankly, because everyone knows there's got to be a trick here. Everyone's going to tell me there's a trick. Well, it kind of is. Jesus' parable, let's go back to that. The end of the story, the master returns and he asks for a, a report. And they, they acknowledge the owner of all this money that they've been entrusted with. And they give the report back to him. You see what happens? They have millions, but they acknowledge who owns it. They never fall in love with it because they never consider it theirs. So, do you know how that works? They never fell in love with it because they never consider it theirs, even though they held millions. They never tried to make it theirs. They were successful, they were content, they, they would have been well paid according to the, the, stipu- the laws of the time. They, they were paid for the job that they did but they never considered it theirs. They had a lot of money, they lived well, they did good, but they never thought of it as theirs. So they never fell in love with it and they never fell into the trap. So Paul then continues in the final part of his instruction to Timothy in this letter. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. You see, he's referring back to those false teachers, and stay away from that, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. And that's how the letter finishes. This whole final chapter almost is about money, which is why it's a key text for us here in our core. So the challenge today For all those who call this place home, for all who belong here, and even if you don't, for all of you, whether you're in the room today, whether you're watching a live stream, whether you're watching it later and catching up because you're at hockey or something, I don't know, God forgive you. Question is this, who owns what you have? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Who owns what you have and how will you invest it for them? 
in our lives, picking up on, on what we talked about last week, in our lives we believe in God, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jesus, Paul, Peter, Timothy, the same God for thousands of years. The same God who has asked his followers to acknowledge his ownership of all things and to tithe, to return back to him the first tenth of the profit that all of us have earned, using the gifts, talents, opportunities, and everything that we have been given by God. To tithe. So, in a second, we're going to put on a track after we pray. No, it's a piece of music. And I'm going to invite you to, to reflect quickly but I, I do hope that over the last few weeks that you, you've had the opportunity as a family to, to sit to think to consider what your commitment might be and when you're ready to come and to place your pledge card on these silver platters um, a quick note you, you don't need to fill out your name on those pledge cards. We'd like to know names so that we can make sure that we are, you know, we can count on it. It's good for accounting, but if you need to leave yourself anonymous, that's fine, but we do need to know what we can count on, what, we, what is committed so that we can plan for the future, so that we can continue to build this house and to continue to fill it with, what was the words, Rare and beautiful treasures. To continue to fill this place with rare and beautiful treasures, just like you and us. So we need to know what, your, what, what the commitments might be. What God is calling you to commit to over the next 12 months. So, um, if you're ready, we'll bring your cards again to commit again to the cause of Christ here in this court. So let's pray. God, you've given us so much to manage. To some of us, you've given lots of funds and finances. We ask that you help us to invest those wisely, according to the principles you taught. Help us to invest, we pray, to be wise and to not keep everything in one basket. But most of all, we pray that you help us not to become attached to the wealth that we have. Help us keep it at a distance. Remind us that it's all just yours anyway. We didn't have any when we arrived and we won't have any when we leave. So right now, God, we are trusting you to take care of us. We recognise that all throughout history of our faith, you've asked for a tithe. And today, we pledge that in this millennia-old tradition, because we know that a passionate and effective church is one that is generous and obedient. Help us, God, today, as we trust you to take care of us, Continue to walk in your ways and may your church grow. May your light shine. May joy be experienced as your love flows out across this community, we pray. Amen. And amen. Let's play this.